Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, Washington Post journalist Toulouse Olorunipa and Robert Samuels talk about their book, His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice, published by Viking Press in May 2022. Olorunipa and Samuels, who won prestigious Peabody and Polk Awards for their reporting on George Floyd's life and legacy, we're interviewed by bio member Jennifer Skoog. Thank you so much for joining me, Tolu and Robert. What an amazing book. One of the most pressing questions for me has been, how did you two end up working together on this biography? I can start and thanks so much for having us. Um, we started off back in the summer of 2020, actually working on a series for the Washington Post, which uh, involved dozens of journalists, actually, from print journalists to podcast producers to video journalists and editors. It was a huge team. And the idea was to tell George Floyd's story in a different way, to tell it in a full way, to tell his story and the story of the America in which he grew up and use his experience, uh, not only his death, but his life to show how systemic racism operates in America. And Robert and I were two of the main reporters on that series. And after that series was produced and had a great impact and even people close to Floyd said that it allowed them to see their loved one in a new way. They allowed it allowed them to understand what he was dealing with in, in America in a way that hadn't been told before. And we knew that telling his story involved um, more than uh, just what we were able to do in the confines of a newspaper. So we came together and decided to tell the story as a book, a full-length project that would involve hundreds of additional interviews, thousands of hours of spending time grappling with these various issues, and also telling Floyd's story as someone who had a full life before he met the officer that took that life and was not to be known and remembered only by the final 10 minutes of his life, but the full life that he lived and the legacy that he left behind. Yeah. And how did you two divvy up your research and writing process? Did you divvy it up individually? Like one of you went to Houston and one of you went to Minneapolis or how did you do that? Oh, this is Robert. Yeah, there was a, there was a little overlap, but first we started with all the research that was done at the Washington Post. We had our colleagues who are incredibly generous. They gave us all their notes, all their tape. It was thousands of pages. And, uh, when we started this project, it was unclear whether or not Derek Chauvin, who had murdered George Floyd, would be convicted of anything. And so I went to Minneapolis and I was with members of his family and some of his closest friends watching them as a trial unfurl. And uh, since I was already in Minneapolis, I started reporting there. So there was some overlap in terms of the reporting, but those were our two domains. Yeah, and just to add to that, we spent a lot of time editing one another, and you know, we had editors on this project, but before we would submit our chapter drafts to editors, we'd submit them to one another, and we wanted the chapters to all feel like they were written from the same perspective, and uh, it involved us 
sending and shooting back drafts back and forth and spending a lot of time reading each other's work. So when you were working on this project, assuming you took some time off at the Washington Post where you both are colleagues, how did you propose this project during an election season? Well, it was the most important thing that was happening in the country at the time, including the election. And when you go back to 2020, which seems so long ago, there was a real concern in this country about whether or not we understood how systemic racism operated. And there are lots of questions about George Floyd, so it felt like it would be worthwhile. Tolu had taken time off the White House. I was starting to get back on the road again to cover the campaign. But there was just this sense that in 20 years, when we look back at this moment, people will want to understand the journalism that was done at that time. They'll want to have a sense of how this story played into the story about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, and so it, it, you know, it was an equally important mission to a lot of people. So it's been two years since the death of George Floyd. And now that your book has come out, what has it been like doing this book tour during this time in, in history when, you know, there's a fight against critical race theory and all of that stuff? There's sort of a backlash happening. Yes, we had a chance to cover some of the backlash as it was happening. Uh, and some of that is in the book, as uh, in the final part of the book, as we write about George Floyd's legacy. And it was important for us to acknowledge the changes that were made as a result of his death, as well as the backlash and the reactionary forces that arose as a result of his death as well. And we've seen some of that, you know, continuing even as this book is being published. Um, it has been important for us to stick to the themes of the book and talk about what we were able to find, uh, let people know that we were journalists first and foremost, and we're not activists. So it's important for us to present the work as it is a full work of journalism in which we talk about George Floyd and his life and the systems that he tried to navigate. It was important for us to talk about those issues from a journalistic perspective. Um, but that hasn't stopped, you know, some reactionary people from thinking that this is just the kind of biography that celebrates everything about George Floyd, doesn't focus on any of his dark moments or troubles or struggles. Um, and so it was important for us to talk about this and talk about our writing in a way that allows people to know that this is a work of journalism, it's a work of history, and we want people to have an open mind to it. Yeah, I'll tell you, Jennifer, you know, not only the discussions about critical race theory, but white supremacist days before we were supposed to publish the book to the world had gone and killed 10 innocent Black people who were just shopping for groceries. So the current situation was very much on our minds as we thought about it. I'll tell you that even before the book was in a single newsstand. Uh, a group of white supremacists had gone to our page on Goodreads and began bombing the book in terms of putting lots of hateful language on the site, screwing up with the algorithm, which I would anticipate would be a part of what happens when you write biographies that look at racism and about people of color. For a number of people, it was very terrifying and very horrifying. The other thing that I think is important to remember is that a part of when we think about replacement theory, it stems from this fear of what this country would be if its power structures 
are more spread out or more dispersed amongst people of color as along with white people. And that very principle is bedrocked on a lack of education and a lack of appreciation about the positivity, about the persistence of Black people in this country, about the contributions that they had, and also about some of the more complicated parts of our history in which people who held power traditionally did not do the right thing. And so we think of the book as an indictment of those who might want to traffic in the idea that there's something to be nervous about critical race theory or about discussing systemic racism. Because we believe that if you understood the fullness of a life, and not just George Floyd's life, but the lives of his family, his ancestry, and the people who had taken up his cause, you'd have a broader view of the country and it would ultimately be to the good. So taking all of that into consideration, how did you know when you were done with your research and writing? Did you have a deadline? Like, how did you know when you were done? We had a deadline, but we didn't write up to the deadline. When we thought about it, there were early conversations about how to end the book, um, because it was unclear when we started what was going to happen with Derek Chauvin, what was going to happen with the federal police reform, which if it passed, it could have been a moment of celebration that might have altered the way we ended it. But ultimately, we had to think about what the book was trying to say. And fundamentally, this book was about understanding the course of a life and understanding whether the death of that life did anything to dismantle systemic racism. What does George Floyd's murder ultimately teach us about the conditions of this country for everybody, for people who are Black and for people who are not Black? So when we thought about how to end it, we knew that the conclusion had to do with how to process this moment and whether or not the struggle for racial justice ended or continues. You kind of touched on this earlier, but I wanted to know about your research and writing process. In other words, did you do your research up front and then start writing? Tell me about that process. Oh, Jenny, you are bringing up some <laughs> some PTSD for uh, authors who go through the process of research and writing and doing it under deadline, trying to put this book together in live real time while reporting out information and doing research. We were doing it all on the fly as we went. There was no time because of our very strict deadline to bifurcate research versus writing versus note taking. We had to do it all in tandem. Uh, we started obviously with a burst of reporting. We knew from the series we had a lot of information about George Floyd, but we knew that there was much more information that we did not have and a lot of unanswered questions and areas that even people who were close to him were unwilling to go when the series came out that we knew that we needed to go. We knew we also were, were going to be doing a chapter about Derek Chauvin and we needed to fully investigate his life. And so we, we started off with a burst of reporting, listing the questions that we wanted to answer and just going really hard for several weeks at trying to answer as many of those questions and talk to as many people who would be able to help us answer those questions. So after we did that, we were able to answer a number of those questions, but there were still some that we were still trying to answer as we got started writing. And we started the writing process, but even as we started, we knew that there was more reporting that we needed to do. So we were writing, 
we were submitting chapters and getting them edited and still remembering that we had more reporting to do. Um, there was a point at which we kind of had to put the reporting notebook down and say, okay, we only can write from now on because otherwise we're not going to meet this deadline. But it was tough because, you know, we constantly had questions that we were asking ourselves and we knew there was always more to the story. And remember, some of this reporting was contemporaneous. I mean, George Floyd was dead, but the people around him were very much living active lives and how they were remembering him was also being very proactive. So it wasn't just research, it was going out into the field, spending a lot of time with people. And there were more than 400 interviews that we talk about, but that is an undercount by any true standard. And the list was long. It not only included people who knew George Floyd, but we had some pretty big targets. You know, we had Senator Amy Klobuchar, we had the governor, we had President Joe Biden. And so as we were doing the reporting, we also knew that having these people would enhance the story, that it would take a lot of work to persuade them to sit down with us and answer questions. And so there was a dualness going on, right? It was what we had, but also knowing that there was a chance that we were going to get even more and the story would become more robust. President Biden didn't answer questions until about a half an hour before our actual deadline. So that's that's how convoluted uh, the entire writing and reporting and research situation was. It sounds like you both built relationships with George Floyd's family and close friends, his network of people. And I wonder how your closeness to these subjects affected your writing or affected the story. It was important for people who we interacted with to be able to trust us, to have a transparency about what we were doing and what we were interested in. And as a reporter, one of the most important things to do is to be able to sit in silence. You know, the times when we were spending and we weren't talking and we could see why they couldn't fix a cat puzzle or why they were doing horse therapy. And, you know, we were around for those things. So being able to spend some time with them, it was able to enhance the reporting experience. Uh, But also one of the things that I would ask folks is not to just sort of sit down and have an oppositional interview, but to have them understand that Tolu and I were going on a journey and we were hoping that they would join us on the journey. And so when we learn about things that did not have to do with their family or their friend, when we were learning about some of the structures that existed around them when it came to schooling or the latest thinking about drug use in Black communities, we shared those with them. So not only did we hope that some of our reporting would help them have a better understanding and contextualization of their brother, We also hoped that they'd be interested in what we were talking about. And so in a lot of times, especially in the political world, the reporting can feel aggressive. But I think with something like this, it often did not because we were able to take our time. Uh, We didn't push hard when people did not want to talk with us. Not everyone in the family talked with us, as is their right. And I think that approach helped deepen the sense of empathy and the delicacy and the care in which we took in sort of trying to explore this person's life. 
And just to add to what Robert said, we were upfront and transparent with George Floyd's loved ones that we were journalists and we were going to try to tell the whole story, that we were going to do it with empathy and with accuracy. But we, we let them know that we were going to try to tell his full story. And they were open with us. They were transparent with us. They told us about his dark moments. They told us about his high, the highlights of his life. And they told us that he was a transparent person. He was someone that acknowledged that he had flaws and shortcomings and was open about them. And that if we were going to tell his story, that we should do it in that way as well. So that's helped us in our writing because as journalists, that's already our instinct to tell the full story, to not shade over things. But it helped that he was also someone who was open and transparent in that way as well. So we could write it in a way that did not seem exploitative, that seemed like it was within the spirit of his own personality. There must have been some details about Floyd's story that got left on the cutting room floor. What were some of those things that you felt did not sort of fit with the narrative? There were things that we learned about that thematically they were already in the book. And so they were deemed not completely necessary. It's funny, one of my favorite things I learned about George Floyd was one of his interactions with his nephew, uh, Brandon Williams. And Brandon tells the story about him being on his high school basketball team. And George Floyd was a father figure to Brandon. And his team was up by 50 points or something. And Brandon caught the ball on a fast break and uh, he missed a shot. The next day, George Floyd woke him up in the morning and said, you need to do 50 layups in a row every morning, and we're not going to stop until you get 50 layups in the first shot. Because in life, it doesn't really matter if you're ahead. You can't miss the basket. And when you think about his philosophy in life and also the message that he wanted to send to someone who looked up to him. That was it. And it was an anecdote that we had learned about in the original series. And I remember trying to get it into the original six stories and we couldn't figure it out. And um, by the time we had 150,000 words, you know, it didn't propel the narrative in the way we wanted to. But I think about that anecdote a lot and wonder, you know, if I were a more brilliant person, whether or not we would have been able to fit it in. I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. So you've named it, his name is George Floyd. And then you focus on his name in parts one and two, where in part one is called Perry, part two is called Big Floyd, and then part three of the book is Say His Name. And I wanted to sort of get your thought process behind the name George Floyd and sort of this thematic approach to the structure of the book. Yeah, Jenny, it's, it's, it was so powerful to see how George Floyd's name became this rallying cry for racial justice after he died. And it was important for us to key into that in the title of, of the book, in part because there were those chants, say his name. It was an acknowledgement of the fact that he was a human, that he was someone who mattered, someone whose life mattered, and someone who couldn't just be erased and forgotten and ignored by a state agent. And I think you know some of those declarative chants of say his name and people chanting his name in the streets all over the world 
were a sign recognizing his humanity. And one of the lines we have in the book is that as long as anyone could remember, George Floyd wanted the world to know his name. He wanted to be known. He wanted to be famous. He wanted his name to go far. Now he did not want to be a martyr or, or die in such a way that that's the way that his name became global in nature. But it was important for us to recognize that was a part of his story. He had dreams and ambitions. And part of those ambitions was that his name would travel far and wide. Uh, and those ambitions go back to the first part of the book titled Perry, where you know his middle name is how people knew him growing up. He was Perry Floyd. He was the kid that was running around and rambunctious, but also a pretty good student and someone who wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, someone who had dreams and who did exceptionally well on the football field and saw that as a potential pathway out of poverty. And then in the second part titled Big Floyd, he's starting to face some of the troubles that come along with trying to come of age as a young Black man in a place like Houston's Third Ward, which was segregated and disinvested from. And we see the criminal justice system interacting with his life and the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And he's becoming a man, but he's sort of haltingly navigating what it means to grow up as a Black man in America, where you're often targeted for any mistake and how those mistakes get amplified. And the third part of the book involves the period after George Floyd dies and his name becomes something that's on a global scale and people are chanting his name and using his name as uh, a rallying cry. And we talk about how his name gets affixed to legislation and how different corporate boards start using George Floyd's name to change their ways and to try to put emphasis on diversity and inclusion. So uh, that was a, a key part of why we structured the book the way we did. And a part of it was that we learned that one of the things that people who knew and loved him, it was unusual to hear him referred to as George Floyd. Um, there are two scenes in the book that I, you know, I think about, and one is at the one year anniversary of his murder. And he used to work at the Salvation Army and they're having a balloon release for him. And they say, say his name and everyone goes Big Floyd, you know, as opposed to saying George Floyd. But it was also through the testimony of one of his girlfriends, Courtney Ross, who I was with her one day when she was getting her nails done. And she says, the way my therapist tells me to think about this is that there's Floyd and there's George Floyd. And Floyd is the man and George Floyd is the movement. And if I don't get those two things divorced from one another, I'll go crazy. And I think for a lot of people who had known George Floyd, that was it. Floyd was the person they knew who was gregarious and godly and comical and complicated. And George Floyd was the name that was being chanted in the streets that was singular in its call for a better tomorrow. And so when we thought about how we're going to separate the book that played into it. We didn't want the world to know George Floyd because no one who knew him knew George Floyd. They knew Perry, they knew Big Floyd, and then the world gets to know George Floyd. Hmm. For sure. 
what advice would you give other biographers who want to work together on a subject? Uh, I think it all worked. <laughs> Tolu and I like each other, you know? Um, not only do we like each other, we have incredible respect for what each other brings to the table. I've always admired how fast Tolu wrote and not only that, just how eclectic his reporting and writing style can be. And I think working with someone who you have absolute faith in makes you want to be extraordinary. So it was a situation where I knew I had to do my best because my co-author was going to do his best. And before it even got out the gate, I didn't want to let him down other people who we've talked with who had co-written books and said well you're just going to hate each other by the end of the process but I think the longer we went on I liked Tolu even more <laughs> yeah and Robert's incredibly generous with with those words uh, but I, I think the sentiment behind them in terms of advice is so key if I didn't respect Robert as a writer it would be incredibly hard to wrangle such a complex story where we could have taken a lot of different approaches, but having respect for your co-author and knowing that they can deliver, knowing that they uh, have similar values, especially as, you know, ethical things came up, it was important for us to be in lockstep and knowing that you can rely on your partner. Um, I would definitely give that advice to, yes, make sure you like your co-author, make sure you spend time with your co-author, talk about things and decisions that you're going to be making so that you feel comfortable with those decisions as they come up and talking about how you deal with potential disagreements on the front end was very valuable to us. And finally, the last thing I'd say is like, make sure that you have a, an editor that you both like, someone that you both feel comfortable with so that um, you can both have trust that, especially when there are areas of disagreement or areas where you're both not sure that you can kick things up to your editor and allow them to help shape and structure your um, decision-making. Wow. I just have one question left. You both worked on a super heavy subject matter and I'm a personal trainer and I'm always curious how other writers take care of their bodies and selves. So what are your forms of self-care? Mine is relatively boring. I, I would go for a walk very early in the morning, every morning, and sometimes late at night after writing. Um, it's how I cleared my head. I would walk a mile or two miles and, you know, ideas would come to me. Sometimes I would listen to what we had written because there's like these robotic <laughs> voices that auto read um, some of the things that you've written. So I, sometimes I would listen to that. Other times I just listen to music and, and like really clear my head. That was how I somewhat took care, care of my body and didn't allow the 12 hour periods of sitting in front of the computer to like weigh me down. I learned George Floyd's workout routine, started trying to mimic it. And I tried to get my mind off things by lifting heavier weights. Two cell phones were lost in the creation of this book because I dropped dumbbells on them. That was, that was one of the things and say, you know, if George Floyd could lift a hundred pound dumbbell, I could do the same. I could not, but I tried. Um, and the other thing, I really believed that if we did our job, we might be able to 
open an eye or change a life. And it motivated me. Being around the people who we were with motivated me too. And so it allowed me to wake up in the morning. It like allowed me to go to bed because I knew I needed to be refreshed to get up and do it again. You just heard award-winning co-authors Toulouse Oloranipa and Robert Samuels speaking with bio member Jennifer Skoog about their book, His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice, published by Viking Press in May 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on June 7th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.